0: Addicted to Love, autobiography of Jan Leeming. Chapter 13 The Darkest Days. As the week wore on, I kept breaking down in tears, and sleep totally eluded me. I'd already been through weeks of anguish, waiting for the day of departure and hoping it wouldn't happen. My doctor was already acquainted with my situation and prescribed Prozac, but it takes about 10 days before the effect kicks in. He'd also arranged for me to have sessions with a stress counsellor who worked within the practice and it happened to be the same Mary Stones I'd seen a few years previously. Weight was dropping off me and within three weeks I'd lost a stone, taking me down to under seven and a half stones. I'd been invited to unveil a plaque in Lytham St Anne's, officially opening a Royal Air Force Association home. This had been in my diary for a long time. I didn't want to let them down and felt that getting out of the house and meeting people would be good for me. The invitation was for two to be flown to Lytham in a Chinook helicopter. When I originally accepted, Eric would have partnered me. This was now out of the question, so I invited John Dobson's wife Fenella. You aren't offered a ride in a Chinook every day of the week. She was delighted to accept. It was an experience. You can't hear yourself think, let alone speak, over the noise of the engine and the rotor blades. Just as work is always good therapy for me, it was a tonic to be with people, and we both enjoyed our afternoon. Driving from Strike Command, where we landed, back to my home meant going near High Wycombe, and I needed to collect a registered package. I walked into the sorting office, and there he was. He should have been miles away and the unexpected meeting completely unnerved me. Tears welled up and I turned away from him. He went outside, saw Fenella sitting in the car, and asked her to find out whether I wanted to speak with him. I simply couldn't. I had an engagement to present the Chartermark Awards in the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre. This necessitated a very early start, so I took advantage of my associate membership of the RAF club and booked a room for the night of 3rd December. Somehow the confirmation note went to Eric and not to me, so he knew where I was that evening. The third was Eric's birthday, and in my stupidly romantic way, I half expected a knock at the door, him standing there saying it had all been a silly mistake and could he come home. It didn't happen. Because I had no regular work, There was too much time to dwell on the whole horrible situation. We had some long phone calls. Sometimes they were OK. At other times we said ghastly things to each other. I was accused of so much over the years. Losing him his friends because I don't like drinking sessions. Stopping him doing his aerobatic flying. Dragging him round to all the things I wanted to do. He said he had to clock watch when visiting his children because I had a meal waiting. All this sounds so petty, but if you don't discuss your grievances within a relationship, the tiny cracks become massive chasms. I'd no idea so much was eating him up. To be fair to Eric, once or twice after he left, he had asked if we could meet for lunch to discuss our problems, but I didn't feel strong enough to cope. I didn't want to be with him and then have him walk away from me to go home to another address. However, on one of the agreed periods when he was to use the office, I suggested we at least had a coffee. I had meant coffee, but we ended up in each other's arms and inevitably in bed. He begged me to give him time and asked me to wait for him. Time I could give him but it was his domestic arrangement that was totally unacceptable to me. After he left, I felt desolate. I was in trouble on all fronts. I'd lost the man I adored, there was no work on the horizon, and the future looked totally bleak. Mary Stones and many of my friends did their utmost to help me, but I knew I was going into a decline. I have, from time to time in my life, suffered from depression, not manic, but mad enough to make me ill. Mary began to be worried and suggested I needed hospitalisation. I didn't want that. I felt it was too drastic a move and was desperately worried about the press finding out. I've always taken refuge in flight, so I phoned my friend Quesi, who'd moved back to South Africa. She lived in a beachfront house at Umshloti, just north of Durban. She readily agreed to my visit And I set about getting the fare together by selling some of my designer clothes and a few bits of jewellery. During the early years of our relationship, I had paid the mortgage and all the bills, but the tide had turned. My earnings were dropping off alarmingly. Eric now had a good regular income. So apart from the mortgage, Eric paid for everything. He'd given me a very generous allowance when he left, but life wasn't easy. Having a holiday in South Africa to look forward to made me feel a lot better. And I had begun to feel angry. Most therapists will tell you to stop directing all the anger at yourself and start directing it towards the other party. After all, it takes two to make and break a relationship. I was angry, but I still loved Eric and would have taken him back with no questions asked. Although I couldn't understand his thinking... I knew that he too was in turmoil, and on several occasions he begged me for time. And then the press found out. Time ran out. We were put under phenomenal pressure. On the 11th of December, I opened the front door to a man from the Sun. He started to ask leading questions, and I slammed the door in his face and rang Eric immediately to forewarn him. There was nothing the next day, and I wondered if we'd be left alone. Fat chance. On the 13th, the press were there en masse. They are like hyenas who smell blood and come to pick over the carcass. I rang Eric, who said he'd come back home and try to fend them off. We gave a statement to my agent, saying that we were having a trial separation and would they respect our privacy. Of course, they wouldn't and didn't. At lunchtime, I had to go into London to the Albert Hall to rehearse the presentation and some readings for a charity concert to be held in aid of the Dyslexia Association. By the end of the afternoon, eight newspapers had contacted my agent, most of them offering money for our story. The bidding went very high, but there was no way I was going to talk, nor was Eric. I wanted him back, and wasn't going to let on about the other woman. Again, I should have heeded the advice given by James Kelly back in 1987. Whether you give them a story or not, the papers will print. There were some unpleasant articles with headlines such as, just why is Jan Leeming such a loser in love? The simple answer is that I have a penchant for falling in love with womanisers. I have a theory that the most interesting and sexy men find it impossible to be monogamous. So, you pays your money and takes your choice. Dullsville or the risk of hurt. As the press didn't know about the other woman, I was blamed for everything and made out to be some kind of ogress. It was all so hurtful, I could feel myself near breaking point. I've had some pretty nasty things said about me in the press, and it never ceases to wound. But the one that took the prize for being the bitchiest I'd ever set eyes on was drawn to my attention by my friend Sandy Roham. She ran up to ask if I'd seen an article in the Sunday Times Supplement entitled Relationship of the Week by Chrissie Eiley. Sure enough, it was devoted to Eric and myself. The trouble is that newspapers get it wrong so much of the time. It's then committed to microfilm and kept, along with all the other inaccuracies. And what a friend or insider said, The nastiness cannot be eradicated unless you can extract an apology. This is well nigh impossible. Sandy and David were so incensed on my behalf that they contacted their solicitor in the late Lord Goodman's practice. The gentleman read the article and spent 20 minutes on the phone to me. A summation of what he said was, yes, we know of this young lady and her articles. What she has written is character assassination. But unless you have the money to take on the paper and are prepared to spend a couple of years fighting your case, my advice to you is to let it drop. And that, sadly, in my opinion, is why so much of this inaccurate journalism continues. Very few people can afford to fight, so we just have to take it on the chin, and yet more erroneous words, judgments and valuations are committed to the microfilm for yet more journalists to use as the basis for their inaccurate outpourings again and again. When I first joined the news in 1980, There was an article in a rag of a magazine and the headline was My Trouble with Men by Jan Leeming. Down at the bottom, the article was credited to a male journalist. What he'd done was to take various quotes I'd made or was purported to have made from different newspapers and magazines and cobbled them together. I'd never even met the man, but there was nothing I could do about it. Apart from the emotional hurt, the pressure on both of us was enormous. Eric had to take a few days' sick leave. When you fly an aeroplane, safety of your passengers is your first priority. If you're being doorstepped and hassled, your concentration cannot be at its best. British Midland gave him time off. I was trying so desperately hard to understand Eric, and eventually a mutual male friend suggested I went to a military psychiatrist who might be better able to help me. Being military, he might have had a better understanding of the mind of someone who'd spent most of his adult life in a potentially dangerous and exciting profession. It was suggested that Eric should also see the man. He went a few times because he declared that he really did want to sort himself out so that we could live together again, and then he stopped. My son and I had several invitations to spend Christmas with friends. Poor Jonathan, he'd put up with so much from me that I let him decide whom we would most like to be with over the Christmas period. He wanted to spend it with Linny, the mother of Eric's and my godson, Ronan. Jonathan is extremely good with very young and very old people. It was the ones in between his peer group with whom he had problems. He loved Ronan and it was a good decision for them to be together. Jonathan was very paternal with him. Linny is great fun to be with and is an extremely strong character, but despite being supportive, she simply couldn't understand my continuing love for Eric. Nor could I, but then love is blind and I was. I didn't want to impose my misery on any one person for too long, So I had decided to split Christmas and took Jonathan down to Cornwall to visit his godfather, John Dobson, my long-time-ago boyfriend. John is very successful and sensible, but being a man, he, like Linny simply couldn't understand my continued love and faith in Eric. I must admit that I was beginning to feel like a rubber band stretched to breaking point. I put on a good face for Jonathan and my hosts and my salvation was the thought of a couple of weeks in the sun with Quezzy. The new year began with hope, and within a week disintegrated into a meltdown situation. Eric and I had exchanged letters and phone calls, and always the sticking point was the fact that he was living in her house, even if they weren't exactly living together. I had decided I simply couldn't go on with the worry, the tears, the lack of sleep, the uncertainty. How on earth could Eric sort himself out and have space when he was continuing his affair with her? It wasn't fair on me, her or him. On the 31st of December, I posted a letter to her asking for the truth about their relationship. The same day, I phoned Eric to leave a message on his answering phone thinking he'd be at work to make arrangements "'about his use of the study, which we still shared. "'He was just leaving to go to the airport. "'We had a furious row, and he slammed the phone down on me. "'Half an hour later, he rang to say he was prepared to give her up. "'I can't express the relief I felt. "'It was like a terrible weight being lifted off me. "'Although it was a foggy and miserable day, "'I took the dogs for a walk and felt happier than I had done for weeks.' I had to go to bed early because of work the next day, but despite my newfound optimism, sleep eluded me until well past midnight. I'd been invited to read the news from the 1st to the 5th of January on The Big Breakfast Show. My instinct was to refuse, but the agent persuaded me it would be good to be seen in a less sober light and the programme was watched by a large audience. I was picked up by a car at 5 a.m. and taken into the London studios. The news for The Big Breakfast came from a small studio at ITN, so I never actually met the presenters, Chris Evans and Zoe Ball. But there were times during the programme when they interacted with the news presenter, and that was fun. The news journalists were welcoming and helpful, and I very much enjoyed their company. Although it was only for a few hours, Working kept my mind off my problems. New Year's Day 1996 was nasty and foggy, but after catching up on a couple of hours sleep because of the early start, I took the dogs for a walk in a spirit of optimism. Realising that I couldn't find my plane ticket to South Africa, I turned the house upside down looking for it and spring cleaned in the middle of winter as I went along. I was just getting ready for bed when the phone rang. It was Eric to wish me a happy new year and ask if he could come back to our house that night. I was longing to see him and be held in his arms, but I couldn't bear the hurt of him going away again and refused his request. On the second, the gremlins were getting to me again, and I decided to try one last time to make contact with Eric's girlfriend. She was in and though I only wanted confirmation or otherwise as to whether they were cohabiting, she said she wanted to come and see me, and we agreed a meeting for the next day, Wednesday. I actually felt optimistic about my meeting with her, expecting her to be in turmoil because he had terminated their relationship. Was I in for a shock? When she arrived, she talked non-stop, and the story was quite different from what I'd expected. Apparently, she had tried to end the relationship, but Eric had persuaded her otherwise. They were planning a gliding holiday together, and she told him the trip was off unless he had definitely finished with me. Guess where they were going and when? South Africa, a few days after my departure. I showed her some of the affectionate letters he'd sent me since leaving and played her some of the loving messages he'd left on the answer phone. Both of us were confused. Now looking back, I can see what turmoil Eric was in too. But we were all hurting so much, none of us could see further than our own raw emotions. That night, phone calls were flying back and forth between the three of us. Eric was angry with me for putting a spanner in the works, and I was angry with both of them. The calls went on until 2.30am when it was agreed that Eric and I would meet in the study next morning and try to clear the air between us. I had to be up and on the road by 5am for my newsreading stint on the big breakfast. It was pure adrenaline that kept me going. I'd had very little sleep for days. I was so wrung out that I'd booked a massage to try and unwind. When I returned home and went to the study, I found, not Eric but a letter from him, and on top of it was his wedding ring. The letter told me I'd not given him the space and time he needed. He would be taking what few possessions of his were left in the house and that I could divorce him for unreasonable behaviour. By this time, I think I was punch drunk and simply couldn't take it all in. I was due to take part in Kit and the Widow quiz programme that evening and wanted desperately to get out of the engagement but my agent insisted I did the job. I don't remember anything about the show and couldn't wait to fall into bed. The next day, the fifth, was my birthday. They celebrated on the show with a cake and greetings, and as always in a working situation, I managed to keep myself together. The rest of the day passed in a blur of people phoning with birthday wishes, going to see Mary, the stress counsellor, and concentrating on the fact that I was just about to jet away to the sun for a fortnight. In the evening, my mother and stepfather joined me to see Jonathan performing in an amateur dramatic production of Alice in Wonderland. He was one of the Tweedledum-Tweedledee partnership and was very good. I returned home to a message on the answering machine from Eric wishing me a happy birthday. I should have left well alone, but in my inimitable fashion, didn't, and phoned him. We talked for three hours and so much came out. If only he'd been able to open up beforehand and talk about what bothered him and what was wrong with me and our relationship. I thought we were making some headway and asked if he would take his wedding ring back. He declined. Friends took me to the airport the next day and plied me with alcohol before I boarded the plane for Durban. I was also armed with a sleeping pill. I stuck the Do Not Disturb sign on the headrest and only surfaced when we were about to land. As I walked through the gate, Quezzy swept me into her arms and just let me sob. Her home was separated from the beach by a small road and as you looked out of the windows of her living room, there was the Indian Ocean. The weather wasn't very good with only four days of sunshine in the fortnight I was with her. But Quezzi fed me, let me talk, and took me for long walks on the beach with her dogs. It was very therapeutic. We were walking the animals one day when I was almost knocked over by a big Alsatian. Dog people talked to other dog lovers, and soon Quezzi and I were invited to coffee by the Alsatian's owner. His house was directly on the beach. He had a law practice in Johannesburg. Apparently... His wife had been gang-raped and murdered there, and he decided to move to what he regarded as the relative security of Durban. We had coffee, then lunch, and Quezzy left me to spend the rest of the day with our new found friend. By the end of the day, Philip told me he loved me. He was a nice enough person, but really, who was he kidding? I'm inclined to believe the adage that men give love to gain sex and women give sex to gain love. I wasn't about to give anything, but it was good for my ego to have some male attention, and we had a few pleasant meals together. I often crossed the road to the beach and looked northwards, knowing that Eric and his girlfriend were enjoying a gliding holiday somewhere north of Johannesburg. I fantasised that he would come to his senses and drive down to Durban. We'd be reconciled, sort out our differences and fly home together. That's the stuff of fairy stories. I'd only been home a few days when I realised I still couldn't cope. I loved Derek so much, was so confused, felt so impotent and was so angry with myself for my part in the break up of our relationship. Yes, he had been unfaithful, but I knew many women threw themselves at him. On several occasions, they'd even said to me, if you ever get tired of him, send him in my direction. He told me about the forwardness of some of the stewardesses. It would make your hair curl to hear how some of them behave. If you were a red-blooded male with a healthy libido, how would you react to a knock on your hotel bedroom door to be confronted by a girl in her uniform Mac and nothing underneath? Eric was no saint. I was totally faithful to him, but I'd been at fault in other ways. I had underestimated male pride in always being there with my hand in my pocket, willing to pay for everything. He would have preferred we went without than that he was constantly beholden to me. I didn't see it that way at all. If I have, I share, and I share particularly if I'm in love. People were thoughtless without meaning to be in addressing invitations to Mr and Mrs Leeming or to Miss Leeming and Guest, even though we'd been married for seven years. It all sounds so petty, but as someone remarked to me recently, when you're first in love, you give and give without counting the cost. Then when the going gets tougher, you expect a kind of payback time. You find fault. You count your sacrifices instead of giving willingly. Maybe I didn't fulfil all of Eric's needs, but he did mine. Not only did I love him greatly, I found him very easy to live with. Apart from my paperwork, which is always in piles on the floor, but I know where everything is within the piles. We were both tidy people, both good timekeepers, both had a great deal of common sense, we were both sociable and enjoyed company, and we both loved holidays. And he was a very practical man. Probably the only thing he was short on was a sense of humour. I say all this because it's the little things in relationships that start to affect the overall situation, rather like rainwater creeping into rock fissures and expanding to the extent that the rock finally breaks apart. Even the way you squeeze a toothpaste tube can annoy to the point that it eventually becomes a major issue. Not only did I miss my husband desperately... But there was no regular work to take my mind off the situation, and I was concerned about the future financially. I knew the house would have to go. It had always been seen as the largest part of my pension plan, to be sold when we retired, and to capitalise on the asset. On my own, I couldn't afford to retain it. I ran away again. This time, I fled to my friend Kit in Australia and stayed away for five weeks. Kit lived north of Sydney at Pittwater, which is on the other side of a finger of land embracing Palm Beach, where they filmed the Australian soap Home and Away. She had to work, so I was left to my own devices most of the time. Pittwater is situated on an estuary running into the sea. The view from Kit's flat across the water to the National Park was breathtaking, the sunsets, divine. Most days I went to the beach, and when I wasn't reading or swimming, I became a beachcomber, walking endlessly up and down, looking for shells or anything else the sea brought in. On one particular day, the tide was in. I took my usual walk, but it was necessary to wade through the sea at some of the inlets. I walked for an hour or so. When I returned, the tide had receded, leaving the little cove swept and virginal, with no footprints or dog's paw marks. I saw something glinting in the sunlight, and when I bent to pick it up, found it was a Maltese cross. It wasn't rusted at all because it was made of lead. My belief in God had taken a severe battering over the years, but I saw this find as a sign, and when I returned home, I had it silver-plated and wear it often. I fitted in a brief visit to my friend Michael Lawrence who by now had decamped from the city and lived in a beautiful house in the Blue Mountains, a hundred miles west of Sydney. I'd last seen him in 1979, and though he's the worst correspondent on the planet, he did keep in touch with a biannual letter. I knew he was happier and had found a certain peace by embracing the Catholic religion. The Blue Mountains are incredibly beautiful, The climate is decidedly chillier than Sydney. And whilst I was with Michael, it was sweater weather. We spent our evenings watching, at my request, many of the television programmes he'd scripted and which had been highly successful for him in America. After my five weeks with Kit in the glorious sunshine and greatly enjoying the open-air life of Sydney, meeting her friends and going to barbecues and for midnight swims, I most definitely did not want to return to England, but I had to. I couldn't run away forever, and I had a few corporate bookings in the diary. I was still seeing Mary Stones, the stress counsellor, and though she was helping, there were many black days when I didn't feel I could go on. My friend from BBC days, Tim Marshall's wife, Sarah, was wonderful. Despite having two small children... She was totally unstinting with the time she gave me. She was always willing to listen to my outpourings over the phone. She regularly invited me to kitchen suppers, where I was accepted as one of the family and made to feel less lonely. My other close girlfriend, Chloe, organised many outings and involved me in her life in order to take my mind off my problems. Other friends were marvellously supportive, but Sarah and Chloe lived almost on my doorstep and their shoulders were there for me to cry on. At half-term, Jonathan and I went to Paris for a few days with Owen and Mireille and the two of us did the usual touristy things together. I enjoy Jonathan's company a great deal. In some ways, he's very mature and we both share a pleasure in the artistic and cultural side of life, so our little holiday was great fun. And then... I don't know what happened. In June, my depression was getting very bad indeed. There were days when I found it hard to get out of bed. I was fine if there was something on which to focus, like a job or an art class or a social gathering. I was living a double life. On the surface, it looked to everyone as though I was healing. But underneath, I was being pulled into an ever-deepening pit. People who've not experienced depression cannot possibly comprehend how helpless you are. Those who have will know exactly how it feels. There is a total sense of hopelessness. You're unable to think positively about anything. It's an effort to do even the most mundane everyday tasks, You feel as though all the blood has been drained from your body and sleep is what you continually crave. It's like being in a black hole and there's no way you can gain a foothold to climb out of it. You're unable to see any positive sides to life. Everything is bleak and hopeless. My only bright spot was looking forward to having Jonathan home from his weekly boarding. However, by the middle of June, not even his presence, could shape me out of my deepening depression. I put on a brave face for him, but I could think of nothing further than just not being any anymore. I wanted to die. It was impossible to weigh up the good and positive things in my life, such as my lovely son, my parents, friends. I can't remember how much of that week that I slept. I was in the depths of depression, almost continually, only getting out of bed to feed the dogs. I existed on a few biscuits and cups of tea. On Friday, I went to the Royal Grammar School to collect Jonathan for the weekend. I'd reached the crunch point, the absolute lowest point you can go. After that, There's no way but up. Life very slowly began to look as though it was worth living. I still ached for Eric. But the kind of correspondence I was now receiving on purely practical matters made me realise that any hope I might have sustained about his return was a false one. There was a date in the diary to which to look forward. I'd been asked to go on a cruise up the Norwegian fjords in exchange for a few talks and mingling with the passengers. The invitation was for myself and partner. So I took Jonathan. It was of particular interest for him, being a quarter Norwegian, and he quickly became an unpaid member of the backstage crew who looked after the nightly entertainment. I still wasn't completely myself. I managed to socialize during the day, but took to my cabin after dinner to read and have early nights. Again, it was great to be with Jonathan. We visited glaciers, fjords and the land of the midnight sun. Despite everything, I still loved Eric, but realised he was not coming back. I'm unable to let things drift, and knowing we had no future, I needed closure and initiated steps to divorce him. I needed that finality so that I wouldn't still be living in hope. I had to face the future on my own to get stronger and thank God for all the good things in my life. One thing I couldn't face was losing my home on top of losing my husband. Because of its location, I knew the house was eminently saleable. So I made the decision to live on an overdraft pro tem until I had the emotional strength to let the house go and move on. As I began to feel better, I started entertaining. One of my favourite pastimes is having friends to dinner. And it began to matter less. There was no man to play co-host. The female section of the Daily Mail was doing a series of articles entitled Dressed to Kill, in which set questions were asked of the subject, including their favourite item of clothing, the latter being the article in which the subject would be photographed. I'd been extremely fortunate in knowing the director who worked for Zandra Rhodes. I can understand Zandra's attitude, because if I designed gorgeous clothes, I'd be loath to part with the prototypes. However, Zandra had thousands of gowns. She was persuaded that she really had to offload some of them. So sales were held, through invitation only, and I was a lucky recipient." To have owned a Zandra beaded creation, let alone several, would have been beyond my wildest dreams, but the sale made it possible. I reckoned this kind of opportunity probably wouldn't come again, so I added the cost to my ever-growing overdraft. So for the mail article, I wore my exotic beaded green Zandra Rhodes creation, and not long afterwards, received a letter passed on by the newspaper a state secondary school head teacher had a pupil who was doing a dissertation on Zandra and he asked if I would consider contributing an interview for inclusion in her work. This was August 1996 and though I was mending I was putting an enormous amount of correspondence and invitations on the ever-growing pending pile. I often leave the pending until it is pended. So far, it's out of date and I don't have to answer. That's what I did with the letter until May 1997. Going through a pile of pendings, I felt guilty at not helping the young girl and wrote an apologetic letter to her head. In the post a few days later was a very artistic card that said, Dear Jan, thank you very much for the trouble you took in writing. Very best wishes, Chris Russell. The address at the top of the card was his private one, and that might have been that. But I chose to reply, stating that the card was lovely and an unusually artistic choice for a man.